Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Please stay standing with me as we pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we pray, Lord, that you would just use your words. Use the words you spoke through your son in this passage that we would listen, that we would understand what it means to be humble. We would understand what it means to become like children. Get our uh, pride out of the way, get ourselves out of the way, and just work your spirit in us this morning. I pray, Lord, you would uh, use me with clarity uh, that we would hear these words and understand this message. In your name I pray, amen. Now, one of the things that I love to do at the beginning of a sermon is to try to give a good example. And Jack, can you come with me, buddy? Is this all right? Do you see all those people? Can you wave and say hi? Say hi. And for this sermon, I thought I would knock it out of the park. I'm gonna take Jesus's example and do the same thing. Now, unlike Jesus, I'm not gonna be able to hold him the whole time, but I can show you what it's like to have a child up here. Now, if you don't know, this is Jack. Can you say hi now? Good job, buddy. Thank you. This is Jack Ellis, my nephew. And I love all of my nieces and nephews the same, mostly. But this one I like a lot because he likes to eat. And nobody else likes to eat like Jack. But I want you to look at Jack right now and fix him in your brain. All right? He's a young child. There's many characteristics that come with a young child. There's many different things that come with him. And we need to be like this young child. And we'll talk about in what ways we need to do that. But this is it. You did good, buddy. Can I have a high five? Thank you. Can you say bye to everybody? Bye. Thank you. Now remember that child. I'm not going to have any better examples the entire day. So keep that one in your mind. All right. So we are in Matthew 18. And let me just give us a quick stock of where we're at within the book of Matthew. So there are five discourses or five sermons that Jesus gives throughout the course of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount, 
which we read a long time ago, it feels like now, but it's not that long ago, about six months ago. We have the mission of the messengers, where Jesus talks about what our mission is and how we're supposed to go out and spread the gospel. We have the mysteries revealed in parables, which was just a couple chapters ago, about six weeks ago we went through that. Today we're going to start the discourse on the community of the kingdom. So we're going to start this chapter-long discourse where Jesus tells us what is it like to be a citizen of the kingdom. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, this is how you're going to act. This is what's coming. And then the last one will be the Olivet Discourse. So we are in the fourth of five discourses. We're coming to the near, the end of his ministry, right? We're not too far off there. And this is one of the last things he's telling the disciples. So this is very important, something for us to remember. Let's pick it up in verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if you are like myself or my boys or my friends, we always have the conversation about the goat, right? Do you guys know what the goat is? The greatest of all time. Now, most of the time, the discussion's not one I need to worry about too much because I'm a college football fan. We all know Ohio State is the greatest of all time, and there is no discussion there. So that's easy. But in other sports, we have a lot of fighting. We have, you know, Michael Jordan versus LeBron James versus Bill Russell versus Will Chamberlain. We have Tom Brady versus whoever. I like Joe Montana, personally. We have Lionel Messi versus Cristiano Ronaldo. We have Griffey. We have Ruth. We have Willie Mays. We have Ted Williams. And then we have the Asterix guys, Barry Bonds, right? We have so many different conversations of who is the greatest of all time. We love it. But this conversation comes home. Anytime you go to my backyard, my backyard and you see our boys playing, they're constantly saying they are goaded at this game. I am goaded. I beat you. I am goaded. Right? We want to know who the greatest is because we want to measure ourselves against that person. We want to be better than that person. There is something instinctual in us where we want to be the greatest. So when we see the disciples asking this question amongst each other, we should not be surprised at all. This is a bunch of guys who've been traveling together for a long time, and now they're trying to find out what the pecking order is. Doesn't that make sense? All of you women out there can probably see it a lot better than us guys, but that's what guys do. So they are finding out who the best is. Now, this comes at a very interesting and key point because in the last chapter, we just had a lot of miracles that seemed to really point out some special people among the disciples. We have the transfiguration where Jesus only brings three of the disciples with him to see him in his glory. That's a special event, but only a three got to go there. Wouldn't you feel special if you were one of those three? The rest of the disciples were left behind to heal a boy who was possessed, and guess what? They failed miserably. They couldn't do it. They couldn't heal this boy. Why? Well, they didn't have enough faith. So you've got three that were up on the mountain seeing Jesus in his glory and the rest failing miserably. Mm, that kind of creates some levels amongst the disciples. Then we have the end of the chapter, and I'll tell you what. If all fishing was like this, I would be a fisherman. That he fishes and he finds a bunch of money in a fish's mouth and he gets to pay his taxes. Right? That's pretty neat. So Jesus says, go find this. And 
Is this for all of the disciples? Does he say, let's pay the temple tax for everyone? No, it's just for Peter. So we have these events that have led up to these disciples saying, all right, now from what's happened, we need to figure out who the best is. Greg Allen has a great quote about this. He says, it's a sad fact that whenever we experience the riches of God's grace towards us, we so often start to think about how wonderful we must be rather than on how wonderfully gracious God is. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. The disciples in this last chapter have seen what happens to a couple of them and have now decided that they are going to find out who the best is, who's the greatest, which of us stands above everyone else. Now, if we look at this in the other gospels, we see a little bit of a buildup to this question. In Mark, we find that they're coming back to Capernaum, probably coming back to Peter's house, and all along the way, under this long trip, they're talking about it the whole time. I think of it as, you know, the kids having a conversation in the back of the car while you're trying to get somewhere. Sometimes the conversations are silly and sometimes they're annoying. And Jesus is probably sitting there the whole time going, oh man, I can't believe you guys are talking about this. In Luke, we find that the disciples, Jesus reads their heart and when he comes to them, he already knows their question. But in Mark, we have it set, or in Matthew, we have it set this way, that they come before them, right? So he's coming to them somehow. The disciples are coming to him, trying to find out who is the greatest. And they ask that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, there's a couple great things we need to pull out of this. This isn't all bad for the disciples. There's a couple great things that have happened. One, the disciples have bought into the kingdom. Right? They wouldn't ask this question if they didn't truly believe that Jesus was the Messiah and there was a kingdom coming. Why ask the question? You look silly. The disciples are completely bought in. This shows us that they are with Jesus to the end no matter what. And we'll see. There's going to be some ups and downs with that still. But they're completely bought in at this point. Leon Moore says, They seem to have become increasingly sure that Jesus was the Messiah which meant that the messianic kingdom was just around the corner. And that in turn meant for them that the top places in the kingdom were up for grabs. So point, point one here, Jesus is the Messiah guaranteed we're all in, done. Second thing we see about them, they still don't really understand what the kingdom is. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus has said the kingdom is my people. It's my citizens. It's those that love me. They're still thinking this is a physical kingdom. They're thinking, hey, I'm a fisherman from a no-name town in northern Israel, and I'm going to get to be a governor. I'm going to get to be a sub-king. I'm going to get to be a duke, an earl, whatever it may be. I'm going to have some position of power. i got to grab it now. This is my chance. Somebody's going to know my name. Somebody's going to know who I am. i got to take it. They don't realize that this kingdom at this point will be a spiritual kingdom based on Christ. And that instead of having all the power and lording it over, they're going to sacrifice their lives for this kingdom. They will go out and be missionaries and they will never be appreciated in their entire lifetime for what they're about to do. But they don't know that yet. They think they're still going to be recognized as these wonderful leaders. Third, we find out the disciples are men. 
The disciples are men. You know, I read the New Testament sometimes and I go, wow. Yeah, Peter's got some problems, but wow, he was beyond. Paul, that guy, wow, he's not real. They are figures that are so high above us, we wonder how they could have been real men. Well, in these situations, we see that these are real men with real problems. They're selfish. They want to be the top of the top. They want their name to be known. They don't want to be lost. They're just like all of us. I want my name to be known. I want people to know who I am. This thought is very comforting that they're men, but it's very sobering. If the disciples, the ones who lived with Jesus at this point for over a year, are this susceptible to doing this type of sin? Putting themselves above each other and pushing the others down? What makes you think we're not? It's just tenfold for us. Who is the greatest? This is not the last time we're going to see this either. In Matthew 20, we're going to see James and John bringing the big guns for this conversation, their mom. And they say, Mom, you fix this for me right now. You tell Jesus what's up, right? And we also see it again at the Last Supper. The Last Supper, the night before Jesus goes to the crucifixion, what do the disciples do? Say bold thing. Yeah, I'm still better than you. I'm still the greatest. Little do they know that the Lord of the universe is about to sacrifice himself for their sins. Now it's all about me. I get a better position. Next point in your outline, how to be great. Now, we have the question, it's been posed, who is the greatest? Now we learn. Now we learn. In calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I had Jack come up here because that's probably about the age of a child that came up to Jesus. Jesus calls a child in their midst and starts speaking. Now, first off, Jesus is definitely God because only God could have a young child like that come into their midst and sit quietly while he goes through this entire thing. There's no way anybody else could do it. But he calls him in so that there is a very real picture of what you're supposed to be like. It's a very real way to say, this is what it looks like. Now, children are a little different in our society than they were back in this time. Children were not treasured as they are now. We treasure our children. Have you noticed that? How many times have you guys been to a little t-ball game they're the most boring events in the world. And we sit there and cheer for our kids like they're all-stars when they're really not good. They're terrible. Right? We love our children. We go out of our way to make sure our children are very important. But they're very different in this society. Children are seen as a commodity to keep the family name going. Right? I have five, six, seven children because guess what? Only three of them are going to make it to adulthood. And those three, they better be my smartest because they're going to take care of me and my name when I go. Children were a commodity. They were a drain on finances. Do you know how much it is to feed kids? I'm learning. They cost a lot. And they have to feed these kids out of their pocket. What a drain on finances. They're a drain on my time. 
They're these little things like Jack. They're just small. They can't do anything. I got to carry them around. I got to care for their needs. They're insignificant and small. Why would I do all this? Now, that's not to say people at this time didn't love their children. They for sure did because they wanted their name to go on. But it was a different type of love that we may have today when we go out of our way for our children. So keep that in mind. So Christ brings a child, probably not the top of the society, the bottom of the society, in a lot of ways, up to be like him. They also state here, coming up in Matthew 19, the disciples, and you'll see, they're not real big fans of children around Jesus. Right? They don't really want Jesus to be around children all the time, kissing the babies. Right? They want him to be talking to the adults because children are a waste of time. But Jesus pulls that child in front of them and says, you must be like these children. You must become like this child. Let's talk about that for a second. Now first, he says truly and verily is the word that you look at in older translations. Truly. So we know that when we see the word truly, you truly need to pay attention, right? This is something important. Jesus is not wasting his words This is not just another conversation. Pay attention. Something profound is about to come. Unless you become like a child. The word here is convert. Unless you convert to being a child. That means change yourself completely. This isn't, uh, I got to, you know, wear my shorts and t-shirt and act like a kid. This is, I need to change something inside me. Convert myself to be like a child. One preacher says the disciples at this point were being childish, but not becoming like children. And that's what they need to do. Now, in what ways do we need to become like a child? What does Jesus mean, become like a child? We know that this is not in their thinking. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So he's not saying think like a child or act like a child. He's saying look at the child and the dependencies that this child has in humility rather than thinking that you are greater than you think you are. Become like this child. This whole time Jack was up here, he could have very easily grabbed this lapel mic and started talking, right? And you guys would have loved hearing him more than me. I know it. It's okay. You can think that. And you would have enjoyed the whole time. It would have been funny, too. We would have enjoyed it. But a child at that age doesn't think of that. They're thinking of, am I safe up here? What's going to happen next? What's going on? And they only care about their needs. And that's how we are supposed to be children. We are supposed to be dependent on our father, dependent on our king. Now, children can do very little on its own. I looked up this week characteristics of a child, hoping to find a good list, and I did. It was great. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, says there are nine needs of a child that you have to meet. Let me read through these. A child needs affection. Makes sense. A child needs nutrition. They need to eat, and they need to eat properly. A child needs safety. A child needs basic health care, right? We would call that basic hygiene. A child needs to play. Why do they need to play? So they can learn to use their senses. A child needs a home. They need a shelter to live in. 
A child needs a basic education. They need to know how to talk to other people at the very least, right? They need to be able to get through life. They need to know how to do simple things. A child needs sleep. And the last one, and the one I find most interesting to find on a CDC website, is they need to be disciplined or they need responsibility, how to be responsible. That's the nine physical needs or needs of a child. So it says the CDC, right? Completely secular organization. Now, they say if you fulfill all of these, you've done a good job as a parent and your child will succeed. And I would love to argue with them, but in a lot of ways, some of these are very basic and very simple. You wanna know why? Because children at their core are simple creatures, right? They don't need a lot. They don't have hidden agendas. When they ask for breakfast, they're not asking for anything else. They're asking for breakfast. It's actually breakfast, right? They're not trying to do an end around and take your power from you or to cut you off at the knees or anything else. They're children. They're simple, right? We may get annoyed as they get older, but they're still children, right? And that's who we are supposed to be like. We're supposed to be simple before the Lord. We are supposed to trust him for our needs, trust in him that he knows what's best for us, and be humble, knowing that he's going to take care of us, and it's not up to us to decide what we need to be. Now, it's interesting, as kids grow up, you definitely see these needs aren't required from us anymore. I think about my children, as they get older and as they change, their needs become more of me-oriented, and I'm going to do it my way versus mom and dad, I'm dependent on you. And all of you that have had kids that have grown up or seen kids grow up, you know the exact same thing. The last thing we want to do at our age is I'm not going back to my parents for dependence, period. I'm my own person. I want to stay away from them. And I want to do my own thing. I want to have my own name. I want people to recognize me for me. I'm no longer a child. Now, I joke with my family since, my, since I married into Alex Strauch's family that my last name became Strauch. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, nothing gets under my skin more because of exactly this. I don't want to be identified as someone else's child. I want to be identified as me. I am Greg Smelker, period. This is the Smelker family, period. We are no one else. I will not be seen as someone else's child. You know what? That's the wrong attitude. Why don't I want to be seen as God's child? Why don't I want to see be seen as a Christian? Why don't I want to see, be seen as those associated with God forsake my name? I just want to be with the Lord so I can someday go to heaven. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Drop your name, drop what you want, and just be happy you're in the kingdom because I will take care of every need that you have. You know, the other things we want, we want power. We want our name. We want power. We hate to feel powerless, right? I don't really enjoy any of the lotteries that are out there, but one thing I do enjoy is thinking of if I had all that money, how I would not be reliant on anybody in the world. I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. Why? Because I have all the power. 
I have all the power or the perceived power that I can do whatever I want. I'm not needy on someone else. I can take everything into my own hands. What I don't realize is that taking things into my own hands is only going to ruin everything. I know that I'm not as good as God at anything. Why not trust in him for that power? So if we want to be like children, we need to give up our name. We need to give up our power. And the last one is our glory. We want glory. We want people to praise us. Now, it's interesting. We went through the Sermon on the Mount, and I actually did the, the passage on this where we, you know, I preach up here, and at the end of a sermon, what do I want you guys to say? I want you guys to come up and tell me, thank you. You did a great job, Greg. Right? That's what I want. That's the person in me, the human in me, that wants the glory for the things I've done. Right? And that's not right. If I'm going to be childlike... I give glory where it belongs and it's deserved, and that is in our Lord. Now let's take a quick look at our list, our nine items from the CDC. Are we dependent? Do we rely on the Lord for our affection and our love? Do we read the word and get nutrition from God? Are we not anxious, but do we trust in the Lord because he's our safety? Do we Follow the basics of the Christian life, reading, praying, following him, meeting with those around us because that's our basic hygiene we need. Do we enjoy fellowship with our other believers so that we can sharpen each other in our playtime? Do we know that we have a home in glory that's being prepared for us today, now? He's got a home prepared for us in glory someday, our shelter. Do we listen when he teaches us and do we accept his discipline? Do we accept his discipline in a way that we know that it's for our good? That's the one thing I love about children. Most children, and I say most because there's the occasional that's malicious, but most children are not malicious. When they do something wrong, they're doing it out of stupidity or they're doing it because they have, they have a need that they think they have, right? It's not, I'm out to get you, right? So do we except discipline without maliciousness, saying, Lord, you're just out to get me. Humble ourselves like children. Let's go on with this passage. Let's talk about receiving or death. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, before I dive into this too much, I want to walk us through the terminology Christ is using for child. So it's morphed in each one of these verses, and he's forming an argument. In the first verse, he says, a child becomes such a child, or become a child. Then we have such a child. Then you'll see this new term called little ones. What are these terms, and what do they mean? Right, it's actually very important for this week and next week as Paul leads us to understand what this term means. This is us walking through what we are called. We are supposed to become like children now that I become such a child and then I'm a little one. Does this mean that you're small in stature? Does this mean you're diminutive? Does this mean you're not worth much? Does it mean anything like that? No. This means that you have become a child and you are a little one of Christ. You are his child. 
You are no longer being recognized, as I said, with your name, but you're now recognized with his name. So when you see this term little one, just think me. It's real simple. Little one is me. All believers. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, you are a little one. And if you think you're a big one, then you don't know the Jesus that I know because he's way bigger than me. And I'm a big guy. All right? We are the little ones in these passages. All right? So receiving in my name. Now there's an important lesson here on how we treat others. He says that whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I went to a camp growing up called Operation Everything. And it was just in high school. And what we did for the week is we would go out and we would do all these community projects. And it was a fun camp. I enjoyed the camp. Uh, all the community projects were great. But we had one speaker that would come, I don't know, he came twice while I was in high school, so maybe every other year. And I remember the first night, we get back from a community project. All of us were downtown Mansfield, Ohio, which is in the middle of nowhere, and you probably don't know where it is, and that's fine. But it's not a clean city. It's a pretty dirty city. And we were cleaning up a park. And we come back, and after dinner, we sit down for this message. And there's this smell. Like, well, what is that smell? And then you see a guy in the back of the room who probably shouldn't be there walking up. He's dressed in rags. He stinks horribly. And he's walking through. And as he walks through, person after person goes, are you in the wrong place? Can we help you out? Can we get you somewhere else? I think you're in the wrong place. You shouldn't be here. And eventually he gets up to the front and this was our teacher. This was our teacher. And he said, you know, I wanted to do this so you understand that you treat people how you see them, not how they should be treated. I am a child of God and I'm here to worship with you, yet every single one of you asked me to leave and go somewhere else. Why wouldn't you receive me because of who I am and who I come from? Now, the next night, he did the exact opposite. He walked in in his nice suit. He looked very dapper, looked very good. And of course, we know who he is and we know what he's doing at this point to a point, but also the way people treat him as he comes in. Wanting to shake his hand, wanting to say hello, wanting to look at him. Again, I was treated when I came in the way you saw me with your eyes, not because I am here in the name of the Lord. How do we treat people? How do we see people? Social status may not matter to you, but what about racial status? If we have an Asian brother or a black brother come in, do you treat them different than if it's a white brother coming in the church? There's so many different ways we can be prejudiced against these others. That's not supposed to happen in this church if they come in his name. We are supposed to love all of them the same. There is no difference. Guess what? We are all sinners. And we all deserve death. And it's only because of Christ and his sacrifice that we can come together. So we need to accept everybody on that premise. Now granted, there's always a situation where something happens and somebody has to leave or other things happen. Yes, there's always that there. But on a whole, do you accept everyone around you for who they are? Or do you see people as you wish them to be seen? 
Accept everybody on Christ. Now we have the but part of this, where he says, but, and it's a very interesting but here, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, if we accept people, everything's fine. But if we reject people and cause them to stumble, think about this picture, a millstone. It's probably somewhere between six and eight tons. A big rock tied around your neck, thrown off a boat. And you don't just throw this in shallow water. That's kind of silly because what happens if the guy doesn't end up underwater, right? We got to throw it in a deep sea. So you're going to be taking a voyage in order to get thrown in the sea with this big rock fastened around your neck and you're going to drown. It's better to do that than to reject one of these. When Christ goes for an example, he goes all the way. There's nothing for us to think about here. It's better for us to die a horrible death than to cause one of these to sin. Now, it's important to understand here we're not just talking about rejecting them based on looks or social status or race or anything else. If you cause a little one to sin, it's bad. That goes for all of us. Do we watch how we act with each other? Do we watch what we say? Do we know who's around us? Are we aware of what we're doing that could cause other people to sin? We'll talk about temptations in a second because temptations is talked to as well. But this is sin. If you cause one of them to sin, you better wish you were dead. Think about that. Let it settle in for a second. I struggled this, with this for days. Do I ever reject someone? Do I ever push someone away? Do I ever treat them in a way that would cause them to sin? That scares me a little bit. It should scare you too. This is scary. This is our king telling us we do this or it's better for us to die. Receive those in his name. Do not reject them. We receive them all. Removing sin. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come but woe to the one by whom temptations comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the internal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in the hell of fire. Now, woe. Woe is an interesting word. Woe can mean, woe is me, feel sad for me because I'm going through a hard time. Or woe, the punishment coming to you is really bad. Watch yourself. And we are in the second situation right now. Woe. Hold up. Think about what you're going to do because really bad things are coming. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Woe to the world, watch out, they're coming, right? For it is necessary that the temptations come, 
but woe to the one by whom that temptation comes. Now, I find it interesting in this passage that Jesus doesn't sugarcoat our life. He could very easily and very easily say and do pulling us out of this world so we don't have to deal with this, but he doesn't do that. He addresses what's going to happen to us while we are in this world. We are intermingled in this world with sinners, in sin. The world itself is sinful. And let's not be naive to think we are not going to get tempted. You are going to be tempted by someone or something in this world, period. Don't shy away from that. But it better not be you that is the one tempting. You will be tempted, but don't be the tempter. Now, when you look at this, this is another scary thing. Don't be the tempter. How how can I stop from doing this? What do I do? Now, in the ancient world, it was slightly different. We had some people that would go out and their whole main goal was to get Christians to sin and they would tell everybody about it, right? They would bring home maybe food sacrificed to idols to somebody who said they wouldn't eat that and get them to eat it and then shove it in their face. They would get them to lie about something. They would get them to do something on the side and they would say, hey, see, you're really not a strong Christian. I knew it. And they shove it in their face. Today, I I think this is a lot more subtle for us. Do we allow temptations to come through? We have a much grayer society in my mind in a lot of ways than they did back then. There was a lot of rules that people followed. And especially in Jewish culture, they were very good at following rules. They know that if I follow these rules, this is my way to God. We're in a culture where we don't like rules, do we? We don't like people telling me what to do. I'm going to do it my own way. Leave me alone. So it's very hard for us to understand temptations coming through us. So we need to be careful on how we act. We need to set up something called guardrails. Have you guys ever heard of guardrails? Right there on a road. They're supposed to protect you from going off the road. Right? Sometimes they go up too late and guardrails are on the roads where there's already been big accidents. Sometimes they're there and they save your life. There's guardrails in everything. One of the big libraries right now, or I should say code examples of artificial intelligence is called guardrails. You want to know why? Artificial intelligence lies to you half the time, but it's really good at lying. You're never going to know. So you have to set up guardrails in order to do it. One of the uh, systems that you can put on your phone to track if you are being good with what you're watching on the internet, like a Covenant Eyes or something like that, is called guardrails. And what it does is instead of reporting out, it blocks you from going to sites that it think would even get you on a path to go down that. Why? Because we need to stop ourselves long before it gets bad, and we need to know where to stop. We need to set up guardrails in our life. Another example of this that I thought of is childproofing. Do you guys remember childproofing the house when you had a first child, if you've had a child? You childproof everything. There's gates. There's all these things on the hinges. There's this and that. Because I don't want my child to get hurt. I need to set these boundaries that they can't get through. And what's interesting, after the first child, the second one, you're like, eh. (laughs) And by the third one, you go, I'm not setting anything up. They'll figure it out on their own. But... 
we need to put things, things up. Why do we do these things? Why do we have guardrails? Why do we have child protection? Because we want to protect those that can't protect themselves in these situations. We need to have the same thing in our walk. We need to have the same thing in our walk. Do you watch everything you say around everyone? Let me give an example here. This may touch close to home for some people. Sit down at a meal and I have a glass of wine. Is there anything wrong with having that glass of wine? No, not a single thing wrong. But the person I'm sitting across from was an alcoholic. Is there anything wrong with that wine? No, there's still nothing wrong with that wine. But if I'm tempting my brother in that situation, woe to me. I should not be doing that. Maybe it's some other thing. Maybe it's a, a small thing. I'm not talking about here understanding in the ways you're dealing with sin. I'm talking about understanding how your brother is dealing with sin and making sure that you put up guardrails that you never cross that because we do not want them to sin or to be tempted. Woe to those through which temptation comes. Now we come down to brass tacks of what Jesus says. Amputation. If you have sin in your life, this is how we get rid of it. Just like setting up those guardrails and making sure that we don't cross it for others, you can't cross it for yourself. You have to have your own house right as well. And he gives us this idea of amputation. Now, in the ancient battlefield, most deaths did not come during a battle. During a battle, let's say armies of two armies of 50,000 people are fighting, let's say 10,000 people die. It's not that bad. In the next couple weeks, due to infection and other things, about 35% will die. So that's 35,000 will die from the battle because poor health care and infection. Sin is just like that infection. Now, how would they deal with it in the old world? It's very simple. You amputate. Right? I don't have medicine. I don't have a way to stop this. We just cut it off. It's very simple. Cut it off so it doesn't kill me. Doesn't that make sense? If a doctor comes to you and says, hey, would you rather live another 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, or would you like to lose your arm? I kind of like this life. I think I would rather lose my arm any time. Right? What if he said it's just a finger? Would you rather lose your finger or lose your entire life? Well, the infection of sin, if you don't cut that finger off, will take over your entire life. And you need to cut it out. And that's the example he's giving. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to cut off an appendage, though for some of us it may. It means cut out of your life anything that leads you back to sin. That may be friends, bad influences, that may be drinking, that may be partying, that may be having a computer in a locked room that nobody else can see what you're doing on that computer. That may mean not going out late at night after midnight. We need to understand where our sin is coming from and how we're doing this sin and we need to cut it out at its core to make sure that it does not fester. Remove sin from our lives and help protect those around us. 
Let me wrap the whole thing up in a couple different ways. First, I want to read a quote from Carson that, that summarizes this passage. He says this, The argument is clear. Jesus' followers must become like children in humility if they are enter the kingdom. Those who receive such little ones because they belong to him in effect receive Jesus. Those who reject him, causing them to stumble, are threatened with death. Things causing Jesus' people to stumble are inevitable, yet damning. But the disciples themselves must be aware. Failure to, failure to deal radically with similar sin in their lives betrays their allegiance to the world and threatens them with eternal fire of hell. Jesus' disciples must deal as radically with pride as they were earlier commanded to deal with lust. This whole passage is to teach us how we live in the kingdom. We are supposed to be as children. We are to be dependent on our Lord if we want to enter that kingdom. I was at a conference a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, and one of the brothers that we work with for Biblical Eldership Resources came up and said, you know, I'll do anything you need. I am just so happy that I am a part of God's kingdom. I don't need anything else. Do we have that attitude? Can you say, Lord, I am a child in your kingdom. I will do as you please. I am dependent fully on you. Or are we like the disciples where we want to take things into our own hands? Recognize me. Recognize what I'm doing. Recognize what I've done because I am great in the kingdom. That's not what we're supposed to be. We are supposed to be humble as children. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you so much for these words. We thank you that you call us to humility because, Lord, I know innately I am not humble. I want me. I want me first. I want me best. But that is not what we are supposed to be like. I pray, Lord, that you would help us all become like children in humility, completely dependent on you in all ways. And in that dependence, Lord, help us to push sin out of our lives. Help us to push temptation away from others. Help us to protect the flock in all ways. Help us to love our brothers and sisters and accept them in your beautiful name. The only reason we have this or this is sent to us is because your son came and died a horrific death on the cross. And he paid a price only he could pay. And I pray, Lord, this morning we recognize that debt. We recognize that it's been paid and we recognize Christ as our King and we enter the kingdom as children. In your name I pray, amen.